Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Legend of Portalcast, a podcast dedicated to Avatar The Last Airbender, Legend of Korra, and all things Avatar. I am Colin, your main host, and with me today, I have Kristen. Hello. Hello. <laughs> What's up? <laughs> Uh, it is wonderful to have you back. Um, I am so glad that we are talking about Avatar and specifically also about Korra again. This feels wonderful. Oh yeah, I've 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 been like obsessed lately. Now that it's back on like Netflix and everything, so now we have the full series. We have Avatar and we have Korra, so I get to watch all of them without having to get up and change DVDs. I can be super lazy and just marathon <laughs> it. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> Being it really able to stream is. it. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Um, so uh, if you haven't already tuned in already, we just did a episode uh, for the first episode of book two of Legend of Korra. Folks, we are making our way through Korra. Uh, but, like we've never done this before for the podcast and this feels so exciting. I'm so glad that we are talking about this now because I feel like it has just been such a long time coming. And now with Korra on Netflix, it feels like such a great time to be able to talk about it. Um, so today we are going to be talking about episode two from book two of Legend of Korra, The Southern Lights. Um, so previously on book on so previously on episode one, we kind of got reoriented with all of the crew. We found out what everyone was up to, and it didn't take long for things to start going down in the Southern Water Tribe. Spirits on the loose. They are causing trouble. No one knows how to beat them except for one man. Unalak, the chieftain of the Northern Water Tribe, who has come down to the Water Tribe with his two children, Eska and Desna, along with a mysterious businessman named Varric, who Asami has now partnered up with to help save future industries. Unalak, he's frustrated that the Southern Water Tribe has lost touch with its spiritual side and that they have commodified this glacier festival that was a time before of reverence, of fasting and meditation. And he's letting his grievances be known. And on top of that, he is low-key coming for Tenzin's job to be Korra's new teacher. And by the end of episode one, Korra ditches Tenzin. And is all about Unalak for the time. So that brings us to episode two, The Southern Lights. And immediately we are jumping into it as Korra is early for training. Unalak is a little bit even surprised about that. And is there any kind of instruction? Any kind of like, hey, let me show you that cool technique that I did to calm the spirits? Unalak's like, uh, no, actually, we're just going to the South Pole on a super dangerous trip. And I feel like any other character would be like, like, why aren't we doing this? But Korra's just like, we're getting right to the action. Like, yes, let's do this. <laughs> In her typical Korra style. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so that is setting up one side of the narrative of this episode. The other side is Tenzin and the family arriving to the Southern Air Temple. Um, and what a beautiful sight this is as we see them flying towards the Southern Air Temple, how it's restored, it's vibrant. There are people there, the air acolytes are there. It's just full of life comparatively to when we saw it in 
episode three of the first book of Avatar. It is desolate. It is the remains of this clash that the air the air nomads had with the Fire Nation. And they are greeted by Abbot Shung, who is kind of like giving them gifts and is like so thrilled to be able to give out these gifts as, you know, he's just like, oh, this is for you, a uh, an airbender head shaving device that looks like a straight up out of a medieval torture book. Yeah, it's kind of scary. Like, I get that they don't have electric razors, but at the same time, like, I'm pretty sure that was used to help dispose of despots in power. And, you know, they also give a these massive flowers to uh, to Pema. Um, but one of the funniest moments of this is <laughs> as Boomy and Kaya are getting off of the bison, you know, they're just like all these bags and they're just like, hey, are we going to get any help here? And one of the air acolytes goes, oh, I thought you were servants. And they're like, no, we're Ang and Katara's kids. And they're like, Avatar Ang had other children. It's it's so incredibly awful too. It's like so that's, brutal. The whole episode is basically this dismissive attitude towards them, and you feel so bad because I get that Tenzin and his children are you know very important to the future of the Air Nomads, but at the same time, like if we're gonna put Ang up on a pedestal and put Tenzin on a pedestal simply for being related to Ang, basically. Um, you know, Kai and Bumi, even as non-airbenders, deserve a little bit of love. I mean, it it just, it felt so cruel. You're just watching the episode like, oh my god, why? Why are they just getting, like, dragged on left and right by these peaceful air nomads? <laughs> well, and it's interesting to kind of think about why there is this perspective, and I think because the more we learn about Kaya is that she kind of was a little like counterculture and feels like very like she feels like she is not like maybe all about that spotlight life. I feel like she probably went more under the radar and Boomy went straight into the army and like kind of rose through the ranks that way. So that was kind of the life that you know, he pursued, whereas Tenzin was kind of this, you know, he is the lone airbender who is going to pass on this tradition. He became the, you know, council member of Republic City. There's so much, you know, built into like this responsibility that's laid at his feet. And it's weird, too, because he some, sometimes he kind of kind of paints himself as a reluctant hero. But at the same time, like we all see those hints of like, you know, full of himself moments too. Like he has a little bit of both, you know, Boomy, Boomy's very self-centered and all about that spotlight, but you know, it's, it's very genuine and same mm. with Kaya. Kaya is, um, she's definitely got like some of that Katara attitude, but Katara to me, I actually see a lot more of Katara and Tenzin than I do Kaya. I, I feel like Kaya might have spent a lot of time with like Aunt Toph or something. <laughs> absolutely. I think that Kaya absolutely spent, I, I think with Aunt Toph, I feel like Kaya maybe spent some time with Suki. I definitely get like some of the vibes oh, like coming God, from yes. her. <laughs> and oh. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> but yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's this, it sets up also this like conflict that's going to happen over the course of this season uh, this tension between 
Kaya, Bumi, and Tenzin. Uh, and it really sets that up immediately with this. So we shift back to the Southern Water Tribe. The uh, group is kind of getting ready to depart on this uh, journey to the South Pole. And, you know, before they can leave, uh, Tonrock arrives and Bolin arrives and suddenly it becomes this whole posse because, you know, Unalak is just like, no, I'm taking Katara with me alone. And everyone's just like, Yo, do you not know who we are? We all roll deep. Like, this is, uh, this is our squad. And then Tonrock is just like, I can't let you take my daughter. Like, he does not trust his brother at all. And there's also a protective nature that he has this this perspective that he has towards Korra. Well, and they kind of set it up for us too in that way because if we look at if if you look at Unalak, like as soon as that season originally aired, I got instant Tarlock vibes from Unalak. Yes. Where he puts up that obvious false front, but it seems incredibly obvious to us as viewers that he is very much all about himself despite the way he acts. And part of me hesitated because I was like, it's too easy. It's too easy to have another Tarlock. This has to be a trick. Maybe he, you know, doesn't seem that bad um, or he seems really bad and he will end up won't being as bad. And to be fair, to a certain extent, as foolish as Tarlock was, he, he, in the end, he wasn't genuinely as bad as we thought he was. And, mm. you know, I was thinking, okay, maybe Unalak will end up, you know, being something like Tarlock in the sense of he'll come off as, like, really bad and smarmy and maybe in the end he'll get his redemption. But, you know, we all know how that goes. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and, and it's definitely interesting, too, because the the same idea, you know, with Tarlock, you have that kind of... You get that, you get that feeling about him. But the big thing that you know why Cora kind of has the blinders on this is that there is something that Cora respects above all else, and that is power. And she understands that like he knows how to take down these spirits. When my father, when Tenzin, when Mako Bolin, none of us, me in the Avatar state, couldn't take this spirit down. She recognizes that he has a power and ability that enables him to solve this problem. And I think that that is why she is so trusting and so just like wants to go in on this right away. Because, and I think it's this idea that all these people are telling her, well, you need to go about it differently. You need to go about it this different way. And she is done with that. She does not want to deal with that anymore. And there's definitely a middle ground that I think she could have found, but she goes to a different extreme. Well, I mean, this is Cora we're talking about. <laughs> and I don't think it helps that we start off the season with, you know, that, that broken pedestal trope with Tenzin and her father, um, Tonrock, being the ones who kept her sheltered. That it wasn't necessarily Aang who had put her into that, but instead her father and her mentor. So we start off with that broken pedestal of these people who were supposed to be her mentors that she looked up to. You know, now she's very disillusioned of them and being classic Korra, you know, takes everything to an extreme. And instead of trying to understand why they might have done that, she just instantly rebels against the two of them um, and 
is constantly looking for the negative ways that they treat her. So even though her father is just trying to be protective, she constantly accuses him of treating her like a child because that's how she views people protecting her is that she's not strong enough to protect herself. Which, you know, any of us who know better know that that's not necessarily true. You can want to protect somebody and believe in their capabilities as well. So, Mm. you know, we have that kind of complex relationship with these two people that have been with her for most, if not all her life, and who genuinely do care about her and are concerned for her. But she's so blinded by her (laughs) bullheadedness and her teenage emotions that she can't Mm. pull herself enough out of her emotions to think these things through and respond in a more mature way. And it does kind of push her in the direction of Unalak. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, So uh, one moment before we kind of like go on to the next scene, we get this great moment where Bolin arrives on like on the snowmobile and he's just like talking about, he's like, yeah, I got the snowsuit. It has rations in it. It has all of this. It has all of this. And he's just like, he's nerding out over the technology. And then he's just like, anybody want like a dry, do like cucumber kumquat or whatever. And he's like holding it out. And it's this POV perspective as everyone is just looking at him like, Bolin, what? <laughs> and then as he's holding it there, Pabu just sneaks out of his like out of his jacket, like, <laughs> just like <laughs> oh my goodness, it's he so really great. is our Sokka for this series. <laughs> oh man! So uh, as they journey to the South Pole, Unlock tells Korra about what she must do. He wants her to open a spirit portal at the South Pole before the end of the winter solstice. He explains how the South has fallen out of balance and that by opening the spirit portal, it is going to help the spirits calm and is going to return more of the the Southern Water Tribe to what it used to be. And then as they gather around the campfire, as they set up camp before they embark on the final part of their journey, we find out as Unalak is, you know, kind of like, okay, you want to come, you want to come with us, Tanrak? Well, I'm going to put you on the spot and bring up what happened with your past. And we get this very stark story from Tanrak about how he was banished from the North Pole. Tanrak tells the story about how these barbarians, uh, you know, were attacking the North Pole, these firebenders wearing what seemed to be like old Fire Nation uniforms. They're harassing like different parts of the Northern Water Tribe and Unalak chases after them. He chases them all the way to a hidden forest and he even says they think or they thought that we wouldn't attack them on such hallowed ground. Well, they were wrong. And we see him and the other waterbenders oust these barbarians, but destroy the forest in the meantime. And I think what's so poignant about this flashback is that we see so much of Korra in her father in this moment, I think. Yeah, I I feel kind of bad too because Korra gets so angry with him when you listen to the story, but when I heard that story, I could 100% envision Cora doing the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Because as we see later in this episode, 
her first instinct isn't to look to the spiritual side of her job as the avatar. Her instinct is, you know, chorus smash. Like yeah. that is what she does. And it's so infuriating that she gets angry with her father for doing something that she herself would literally do in the same circumstances. And it's it's infuriating because, you know, she's made all these you know, for us as viewers, very obviously bad decisions uh, towards Tenzin and Tonrock. And we can all see how easily Unalak is manipulating her, but she's so wrapped up in her emotions that she can't see the hypocrisy of her actions towards her father for doing the things he did. And, you know, she didn't, she doesn't look at Unalak and ask, you know, why, why wasn't he the one who went to you know, the northern, the North Pole to help, you know, quell these issues or anything like that. Like, he's supposed to be this spiritual leader who knows all these things, and yet she never thinks to question why her less spiritual father was put in a situation where he would be confronted by spirits. Um, so it, it's it's one of those things where she just, she doesn't stop. She doesn't ask questions. She just instantly, all right, Dad, you're awful. I don't, I don't want to deal with you. And it's just... You just want to reach through the TV and throttle her. She is so frustrating <laughs> to watch. But I think it's frustrating too because they're on a deeper level. I I understand and I was there at one point as a teen. I like had those moments of like frustration and just like anger towards my parents and like about certain things that I would just like, I just, I didn't understand why they were treating me in a certain way or why they were, you know, like for like different rules and things like that, that I just thought were, I thought were so stupid. It and seemed just, arbitrary. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's just like, that's why it's just like, I, you get that feeling where it's just like, Cora, please. But at the same time, that's, I think, what makes Cora such an interesting protagonist. And I think it's what makes her journey as a character so much more dynamic in a lot of ways, sometimes than Aang. Because she starts in this very frustrating place. But when you start there, it means you have room to grow. And it means you have such a it means you have these flaws and you have to get over them if you want to grow as a person and it's a tough journey for Cora but eventually she gets there so without getting too far ahead we move on and we see that you know, Unalak, after Tanrak, like, kind of uh, destroyed this forest, spirits came in, attacked the Northern Water Tribe, and it was Unalak who quelled the spirits. And then Tanrak was banished. Korra, at this point, she is sick of him protecting her. We cut back to the Air Temple. And Tenzin takes Jinora to the Avatar statue room. There's so many great just like echoes of that third episode from the original series. And there's this reverence as Tenzin is talking about this. Jinora is looking on in admiration. And Tenzin is just like, this is one of the most sacred places in this temple. And then Milo and Iki are just zooming by on their air scooters. 
And then we hear them crash into one of the statues. <laughs> and Tenzin goes off in a huff. It is such a it's such a beautiful parent moment too. <laughs> Just like Tenzin's he's trying to frustration have this... with his kids is always the highlight of an episode. <laughs> Let's be real. Uh, like his constant frustration. And I think that, you know, part of the reason why I enjoy it is because I can't take my frustration out on some of the kids. Like I get that they can be relatable to our teen years, but I think yeah. because I'm watching it as an adult, that's why they're so frustrating now. Cause I'm like, no, you don't understand why you're wrong. And <laughs> watching Tenzin freak out over his kids is almost kind of cathartic. It's like, okay, at least somebody can scold these kids. Not that I would ever yell at Tenzin's kids. I think all of them are perfect little angels in their own way. But, um, at the very least, like he he gets to you know occasionally put Cora in her place and remind her that, you know she doesn't have all the answers. She's still growing. She needs to like lean a little bit more on others. You know, T- Tenzin's such a great character for that because I feel like even though Tenzin is obviously not very good at representing everybody, I think that sometimes he's a bit of a character that we can all kind of vent through in the mm. series as he kind of gives, he, he puts into words the way some of us feel about some of the things that happened throughout the series, basically. Definitely. And I think it's, it's the importance of like his absence with this whole journey that Cora is taking. And it's, it, it really is like you see, and we see this too. It was a theme in Avatar, the last airbender when Iroh was like, away from Zuko Zuko went through some crazy stuff and like he like he made some choices that weren't always great and it's it's tough because you just think the whole time like oh if only Iroh was there or it's like if only Tencent was there uh but it's it's a moment of a character learning the hard way and we see Korra really go through that um but Jinora, as Tenzin walks away, goes to Aang's statue. But then she thinks she sees something out of the corner of her eye. We cut back to the South Pole. Unalak talks about the Southern Lights, how they disappeared because of the Hundred Year War, and that the Southern Water Tribe fell out of balance. And that after the war, the North helped the South rebuild physically, but not spiritually. And now that the spirits that would normally populate this northern lights or the southern lights now rage in something known as the Everstorm. And it's super interesting to me that there is this focus on how the South was rebuilt physically thanks to the Northern Water Tribe, but spiritually was lacking. Because we see in the comic North and South that there's this kind of like question over, you know, is the Southern Water Tribe losing its culture? Uh, because are they were worried about the Northern Water Tribe kind of inserting more of their own traditions and beliefs on the Southern Water Tribe. And I think what came out of that was the Southern Water Tribe kind of reacting and being like, you know what, we're going to do our own thing down here. We are going to be the Southern Water Tribe. And I think it's also a stubbornness. We see it in a lot 
of the water tribe. <laughs> we see it in Sokka. We see it in Katara. We saw it in Hakoda. We see that in Korra. I mean, my goodness. <laughs> to a fault. But, I mean, this, this is interesting, though, because this is, again, where they kind of pull out some of those historical parallels that we see in real life where uh, countries form and break apart and sometimes reform throughout history. It's It's... You know, the, the the maps that we draw over the centuries are never the same for very long. And even now we still see power struggles for certain countries and groups to try to regain ground that was once theirs. But to a certain extent, when different related groups experience a period of separation, you know, just like in evolution with animals, sometimes things can grow apart. They can look very similar and seem very similar, but have grown into two completely different things. And we see that culturally too. So to a certain extent, it makes sense that after more than a hundred years apart, you know, we saw such stark differences culturally between the two in the original series where, you know, the North was was painted as this much more refined uh, version of the water tribe compared to the much more uh, tribalistic views that we had of the Southern water tribe. And, you know, that caused conflict culturally between them in the original series. So it's not really surprising to learn that they weren't, you know, the Southern water tribe wasn't keen on you know, in a way, almost being kind of recolonized by the North, who may or may not, depending on who went there, viewed themselves as better than the Southern Water Tribe. I mean, let's face it, the attitudes in the North weren't the best when we met them. Yeah, i.e. look at Paku. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So, uh, as they continue on... uh, the spirits then attack them uh, in this like very like horror movie style attack where they're like coming up out of the ice. They're taking their supplies. They're wrecking through the team. Uh, and, you know, they just like they're they're just completely taken by surprise. And what's so interesting is that like we don't see Unalak throughout this until the end. He always comes in at the end. There's never really a presence there in the middle of the fight. It's just coming in to finalize things. And it's just, it's setting the tone again for how Unalak sees everyone around him. And it really is setting the stage for what type of a villain he's going to be. But we get this wonderful comedic moment as Bolin's jacket gets inflated. (laughs) And he's just sliding down the mountain as Eska and Desna are just like skiing down, doing this amazing like water bending with like these ice shoes. Like they're doing perfect formations as they're like going. And it's just, it's so, it's so great. (laughs) It's, it's pure avatar comedy. (laughs) It really is. It's, and it's, they remind me a lot of May. Like if you took May. And just split her into twins. Like yes. that's a lot of what they remind me of. They're very cold and calculating and, and super effective. And you know, it's just so strange watching Bolin trying to impress Eska because mm-hmm. you know when you look at Zuko and May, like that made sense. They were dark, brooding teenagers. It seemed kind of like an obvious thing. You know, with Bolin, you're looking at it and you're like, "What are you doing?" 
It's like if Sokka was trying to like hit on May. Like that's I that's like know. what is what we're seeing. <laughs> it's just like it's so ridiculous. And you can even imagine May just being like, um, no, thank you. <laughs> yeah, like the Ty Lee flirting with Sokka made sense. May, not really. <laughs> she likes her goth boys, and we all know it. Yeah, but I mean, with with Eska, it's just like this feeling of just like, you will be mine. I'll protect you, my feeble little turtle duck. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! And that that partially makes me wonder because the only time we saw turtle ducks was in the Fire Nation. So, I mean, don't get me wrong. Certain ducks like mallards have global distributions in the world. You know, it's entirely possible that turtle ducks exist in a lot of places. But typically, you don't. You only see like certain things like snow geese up in the Arctic. So I'm sitting here trying to like think my best on how she would have been exposed to turtle ducks living in the in the north. And the only thing I can think is, especially since she's obviously traveled with her father, is she has to have visited places like the Fire Nation or like parts of the Earth Kingdom where they might be native. Because when she said that, I literally paused and I was like, you're from the Northern Water Tribe. Do they even have turtle ducks up there? Where'd you get this expression <laughs> from? Well, I think I think it's a matter of like, you know, because when we talked about it in the episode that you did, I mean, it's just like they seem like they are kind of like this exotic animal that, you know, the Fire Nation brought in. And because they are technically royalty of the Northern Water Tribe, they probably maybe have some turtle ducks there, even though it's probably not the right climate for them. I don't want to put it in the koi fish pond. (laughs) (laughs) There's the two spirits circling each other and then just a couple of turtle ducks. Oh my God. Oh my goodness. So at this point, Korra is like really, really frustrated about what is happening. Tonrock is just being like, look, our supplies are gone. We need to leave. We need to get out of here, which is like kind of logical because it's just like we're in the middle of the South Pole. We have no supplies. But Korra is just like, no, you're leaving. And like Cora's mad about Mako talking to her dad and Mako is just like look Cora you like you just you need to trust that we are looking out for you that we just want you to succeed and you know she she just she has a hard time hearing that cuz again she is swept up in a lot of those emotions and when they finally reach the South Pole, Unalak tells her that she needs to go in alone. And again, another red flag. <laughs> They're all like, Mako and Bolin are like, uh, we go everywhere together. Like, why are you sending her in like by herself? And Unalak knows what to say because he is like, no, you got this. And Cora is like, it's weird having someone trust me. I'm so used to being told what to do. And I think it is like such a testament to Unalak's manipulation. He knows exactly what Cora wants to hear. And he leans into that. And he uses her for this and for many other things, like as we see in this season. Ah. <sighs> So, Cora, she goes in. 
She makes it to the heart of the South Pole after some escaping some like flying spirit snakes <laughs> who are just like trying to like wrap her up and like bite at her and everything. And she makes it to kind of like this very secluded room. She bends water to like kind of seal herself in and she sees kind of where the portal should be. Uh, any thoughts on kind of how that scene went down? Anything like that? I'm mostly upset with the presentation of the dark spirits at this point because, like, a lot of them are serious animal tropes. Like, when mm. they first attack their supplies, um, it they had, like, monkey-like appearances. So it, it was, like, that classic, like, you know, monkeys attacking the, the explorers in the jungle kind of thing. Now we've got snakes and just more demonization of snakes. And so like <laughs> watching this from an ecological point of view, I'm very offended on behalf of all the wildlife that already has very bad press. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and I see some of this and I'm sitting here like, look, if this is a real snake, it doesn't necessarily attack you unless it's got babies nearby. And since it's a spirit, it probably doesn't have babies. And if they're snakes, they just want to be left alone. They don't want to attack people. But I get it. Like, they're supposed to be, like, these aggravated spirits and whatnot. It just, um, there's a part of me that looks at this, and it's it's frustrating. And I do also note the distinct artistic difference in how the spirits are presented, too. Mm. They're not super well-defined. And I guess, in a way, it kind of makes sense that they're not super well-defined because the whole point is that, you know, the idea is that they are these, you know, raging spirits. And it makes me think a lot of, like, Hei-Bai. Um, mm. Now, Hei-Bai, of course, was very well-defined because Hei-Bai wasn't necessarily um, out of balance. Hei-Bai was just angry to where yeah. these are supposedly, like, these I don't know. It, it's kind of weird because Unalak describes the dark spirits not necessarily as being uh, inherently evil, but they're reacting to destruction and imbalance the way Haibai did. But at the same time, they're not acting the way Haibai did because with Haibai, Haibai was very methodical. Like Haibai mm. blamed the nearby human settlement for the destruction that other humans caused to where these ones definitely seem more chaotic and less methodical. They seem more mindless. And yeah. so it feels more, you know, not necessarily that they're evil so much as, you know, it is obviously these, you know, once they're, they're spirit bended, you know, they turn into these placated calmer spirits and all. So it seems more like a possession of something bad. It doesn't seem like Haibai, because Haibai, once he was placated by Aang, willingly on his own turned back into his, you know, natural balanced state and left. So it's just, it's something very different. And I guess that's that's what the artistic differences kind of represent, is this isn't quite something like Haibai. This is um, maybe something more intentional, uh, where an outside force is acting more on these spirits rather than the spirits themselves doing this of their own volition. Yeah. Definitely. So we cut back to the air temple and Janora discovers a different statue, one made of wood. And she's like, who is this avatar? It has some kind of figure behind it with tendrils kind of wrapping around and it adds a layer of mystery. But then quickly cuts back to Korra trying to break open the portal 
and frustration. She's just bending at it. She is yelling at it. The like spirit like snakes come make their way in. They all combine. They try to restrain her. And in this moment where she is like struggling to get back to it, she reaches down towards the ground. And then as the avatar state activates, her finger touches the ground illuminating circle spreads out from it and then suddenly a beam of light erupts out from it and shines into the sky creating the new southern lights but then we also see back where Janora is the wooden statue illuminates so this whole scene and then we see Korra stepping out from like kind of this for- frozen forest and she is like it's kind of it's like this power moment where everyone was like constantly doubting everyone was saying like this is too dangerous and then she did it she opened the portal and there are the results we even see her father as he's going back on the snowmobile like look back and like she did it and i don't know it's 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 interesting because it's a confirmation. It is reinforcement for Cora to know this, but like something feels off about it. And that's what I love in terms of how they kind of tonally captured this scene. Well, and I think it's worth noting too, that once again, the whole scene of her trying to reopen the Southern portal really demonstrates her lack of spirituality because Mm. all she had to do was touch it in the avatar state. Apparently it was such an easy fix but that's not her go-to. Her first reaction was to try to smash it. She wants to hulk out before anything else. And I get it. I mean, we she admits that she's not a super spiritual person and she, you know, struggled with airbending and all that stuff. Like we she she's she's established this weakness in herself as the avatar. But even even though it's something she knows she needs to fix, she still actively doesn't seek spiritual answers first with anything she does, even though this is a spirit issue. Like, it literally is in the name. It's a spirit portal. Why wasn't your first thought to go into the avatar state where you are the bridge between the spirit world and the human world and try that first? Instead, she tries to just smash it open. And... There's no guidance from Unalak initially on this. He lets her, he doesn't even come up to her and go, hey, maybe you should try the Avatar state first. He just lets her wail on this thing. So for all his talk of being a mentor, he doesn't even try to like guide her in the right direction initially. You know, so for all the talk of him believing in her, um, he just basically let her throw herself at that portal until she got it right, which, you know, it is one way of teaching, but it again, you know, it, it's like that whole thing where it doesn't sit right because I could definitely see tens in mm. like watch Cora first try to do the bending and then talk her through it. Like, hey, you know, it's a spirit per- portal. This this would be opening up the spirit world. So maybe your spiritual side would be the best approach. You know, I could see him talking her through this issue and guiding her and. You know, it's it's one of those moments where we all kind of miss tens in a bit because it's mm. so obvious that this isn't quite right. Yeah. Well, and I think the reason that she does it 
Kristen is because she broke through Amon's hold by punching through it. When she had her bending taken away, she couldn't do anything, and she had to unlock air bending. She literally punches through to unlock it. And I think that so much of it's it's a lot of this confirmation for her that it's just like, all right, well, that worked for getting my air bending back when I was fighting Amon. Then clearly this is going to work for this. And that is, I think, you know, what Tenzin sees and like what he is concerned about and like why he is, you know, always trying to like look out for her. And what makes it so frustrating is that he recognizes that this is not like this is not healthy. Because whenever you're trying to just punch through things, it's an inherent act of violence. And that violence always comes with a price. And I think an airbender understands that better than anyone else, which is why it's so hard for Tenzin to try to communicate that. But for a waterbender and for Unalak, waterbenders, they have deep emotions and they have these really strong connections. So that's what Unalak is leaning into. He's letting Korra figure this out and also manipulating her, but like really leaning into that emotional side for her to unlock that. So the squad returns to the south. And as they crest the hill, they look down into the bay and we see warships and an army. And Unalak says, the South is out of balance. Restoring the spirit portal was just the first step. There's more work to be done before the tribes are truly united. Mm. And it's like, red flag. Red, red flags flag. everywhere. Red flags everywhere. It's, and... and did you notice this is the second time <laughs> that a giant beam of light has signaled an attack on the Southern Water Tribe in the series? Oh, my God. <laughs> like, how cruel a fate is that? Oh, God. That and is it's supposed so to be these, like, significant positive things, too, because the first time it was Aang being awoken and the Avatar entering back into the world. This time it was supposed to be balance being brought back between the spirit world and the su- Southern Pole. And I'm just like, all these positive events are always marred with invasion for the Southern Water Tribe. Like, no wonder they want everybody to leave them alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for real. <laughs> oh, man. Oh my goodness. And the episode concludes as we are left waiting, wondering what is going to happen with the North and South about to clash. Ah. Oh. So any final thoughts on this episode, Kristen? It was painful. It was one of those things where for all the trauma that Cora went through, it felt like her growth is still trying to catch up with her. Like, Mm. she's so busy running away from her trauma rather than confronting it that we continue to see this very petulant, immature, rash decision-making that we saw in the first season. And we're all just like, Cora, why? Cora, did you not, did you, did you not, did you miss all of season one? You were there. (laughs) (laughs) Like, 
Why don't you remember all the mistakes you made? And it, it, it's so very difficult because I get it. Like at that young age, we don't process our traumas and mistakes the same way. You know, it's, it's not the same thing as learning like, let's say, a reflex. Like you reflexively learn things like, you know, babies don't know how to see glass. We have to learn how to see glass through experience. Mm. And we have to learn how to dodge things being thrown at us. You know, we develop these reflexes. But just because you develop a physical reflex doesn't mean you know how to develop physical and emotional or uh, emotional and mental reflexes. And those take more time and consideration, which is something you don't develop for a while. So I understand to a certain extent that simply because she goes through bad experiences, she doesn't have to automatically click and evolve from them. But at the same time, considering her role, the things she's been through, and what's expected of her, like, I was so hopeful (laughs) that, you know, I understand that to a certain extent she still has to have character flaws in order for her to continue growing. And you can keep some of those flaws. But her teenager vibes in these first two episodes killed me because I'm just like Cora darling why why are you doing this like it's okay to be a rebel but don't rebel against your allies (laughs) these people are so important and you know I get it like I definitely remember plenty of my very many stupid decisions as a teenager Mm -hmm. growing up a lot of it was towards my parents but even just like her engagement with Mako now granted we all know he's this This poor gaslighter probably doesn't deserve too much sympathy, (laughs) but (laughs) he, 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 you can see him trying. He, he is trying to do better this time. He's trying not to let this be a Sami 2.0. Yeah. So, but he is, he is struggling. He is struggling. (laughs) (laughs) So much Uh, of what we were talking about with Susan, she just said, she's like, all right, the hashtag for this one is. Uh, Mako, like Mako says, says the wrong thing. <laughs> yeah, Mako foot and mouth moments. Yes, all over yeah, the place. Yeah, he just, and it's, mm. it's so funny because, you know, we, we see these two very different approaches romantically from Bolin and Mako. Even though Bolin is trying to be very showy and show off, you know, he's such a genuine person. You can't imagine him trying to be intentionally manipulative. Mm-hmm. Um, Bolin is just just this innocent little muffin, and <laughs> you know it just it, it that that's who he is. That's that's his personality, and you know we know that even though he's trying to uh, go above and beyond to impress Eska, it's not it's not him lying about himself or misrepresenting himself. He's just trying to you know, do as much as he can to seem as impressive as possible to what's essentially in his mind a princess. So, you know, it's like, okay, I get it, buddy. You know, you're trying your best. Good on you. But with Mako, Mako tries to make himself, you know, emotionally available and supportive, but sometimes he's not always listening. He's more focused on what he thinks is important for the other person. And sometimes Mm. he's right, you know, like in, in, in the case where he's talking to Cora's father and trying to make sure that Cora doesn't ruin her relationship with her father. Um, you know, he, he is doing the right thing, but he, he's not necessarily always doing the right thing for the right reasons. 
He mm. he is doing the thing that Cora wishes people wouldn't do, and that's he's deciding what's right for Cora and acting on it rather than trying to let Cora make her own decisions, regardless of how horrible they are. Um, mm. He is doing the very thing that she wants people to not do for her, and that's decide what's best and not let her make her own decisions. So, you know, yes, I agree that, you know, the way she treated her father was wrong and that she doesn't need to destroy her relationship with her father. And I understand the need to try to help protect that relationship, but I don't feel like it was necessarily for the purest of reasons that he was doing it. He was doing the the thing that, you know, usually ends up going very badly for a lot of people in relationships. You know, he's doing the thing that causes some people to go through therapy after relationships. Mm-hmm. And I don't, you know, again, he's not malicious. I don't believe he is doing anything with ill intent. He just doesn't realize that he can be manipulative like this because he does it to his brother too, where he decides what's best on Bolin's behalf. And Bolin also gets frustrated with him for doing these things, for acting like a parent and not letting Bolin make make his own decisions and mistakes. You know, he does the same thing with his brother. So it's... Part of me wants to feel kind of bad because obviously Mako didn't have the right guidance growing up, especially since they were orphaned. He didn't have the ability to let somebody teach him and let him grow and learn his own lessons. So he's just trying to do what he thinks is right. But, you know, his experiences are based off of, you know, what limited guidance they got as orphan children and then his need to step into a very parental role at a very young age. So mm. I don't I don't fully blame him for that, but the kid does need some freaking therapy. Yeah. <laughs> Let's be real. Ah, uh, for real. Ah, uh, all right. Well, Kristen, thank you so much for joining me for this uh discussion of episode two, Legend of Korra book two. Yeah, it's nice to vent every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness uh all right guys well thank you so much for tuning in and uh appreciate it we're so pumped to be back talking about legend of Korra. remember legend of Korra is all on netflix now so if you have netflix you can check it out there or if you got those dvds or blu-rays or if you've already purchased it digitally watch it follow along with us as we make our way discussing legend of Korra for the first time at least book two and on uh, so remember, you can find us on social media at Legend of Portalcast on Facebook and Instagram, Portalcast Pod on Twitter, and LegendofPortalcast.com. And then you can also hear us on iTunes. Well, iTunes. iTunes isn't even a thing anymore. Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Stitcher. Make sure to tune in there. Um, and uh, guys, thank you so much for your support. We'll be back uh, next week with more legend of Korra. so i hope you're excited um and in the meantime and until next time let us leave <laughs>